Okay, so welcome for your Hello. information. This meeting is being recorded. Um, thank you for joining us uh, for the Latinx COVID-19 community response call. Um, this is our fourth call and it's been happening um, every Thursday at 12. It's a collaborative effort between the Commission on Hispanic Affairs and Nina Martinez and her board from the Latino Civic Alliance. Um, I'm going to be putting everybody on mute as you all join. Um, the goal for this meeting is to bring information from state agencies, learn how communities are doing and facilitate coordination between all of us. We will hold these meetings until needed. Our Zoom conference call is provided by the Commission. Um, so welcome and we're happy to have you. Uh, we prepare weekly meeting notes and if you are new and you want to be added to the weekly meeting reminders, um, please send me an email to hispanic at cha.wa.gov. And if Myra, if you can help me type that in into the chat box, that'd be great. Um, or you can also send uh, inquiries or uh, requests to info at latinocivicalliance.org. Uh, we understand that many of you and your organizations are doing an excellent work to address COVID-19 uh, response and we just want to provide the space to share information. We started this effort just four weeks ago and although it is not perfect, we figured out a process to be able to help uh, work with each other. A volunteer subcommittee of leaders creates the agenda for the weekly meetings. Our agenda formula is as follows. So the first 30 minutes will consist of different state entities or state agencies giving updates so that you can learn what the state is doing in response to COVID. Um, the steering committee prepares questions in advance for agencies to address and these questions come from the community feedback from previous meetings. The second 30 minutes will be an open platform to hear regionally from leaders on issues, concerns and or additional information that needs to be shared. Uh, to help with the meeting process, we do ask you to mute your lines, but I do have a mute uh, control here um, as I'm the host and I will be exercising my muting powers. Um, you can send uh, chat questions. We will be um, saving all of those, all of those questions and, and making them um, public, but we'll also capture tidbits of really important information and put them in the notes so that you don't have to go through the chat box. Um, finally, we're not going to do any formal introductions because of the high volume of, of callers. Um, but we thank you for your continued uh, and consistent commitment to get information out to your community. Um, we have been asked to make media uh, members present. So if we have anybody from the media, can you make yourself known? Can you introduce yourself? Hello. Hi. Um, I'm Mai. I'm from New York. I'm from New York. I, put, I always love the chat box. Awesome. Thank you, Mai. Anybody else? All right. Um, without further ado, I'm going to um, give Scott Michael this chance to talk about ESD um, and what changes are happening as a result of the CARES Act. Did we lose you, Scott? Oh, nope, you muted me. And then, oh, I muted you, I'm sorry. I know, it's that, it's that mute button. Uh, yeah, so my name is Scott Michael, uh, not to be confused with uh, Steve Carell's character from The Office. Um, I am the Legal Services uh, Coordination Manager for uh, the Employment Security Department. So uh, I help do all sorts of legal stuff like write emergency rules uh, that have been adopted over the past month. Uh, and I also have been uh, neck eyeball deep uh, into the CARES Act and some of the federal guidance we've gotten from the United States Department of Labor uh, so far. So uh, here's uh, what I can tell you about the uh, new and fun uh, benefits available from the CARES Act. Um, the first is uh, FPUC, Federal uh, Paid Unemployment Compensation, uh, sometimes called FPUC. Uh, I call it the bonus. And what this is, is the bonus $600 that's going to be added on to your unemployment check, uh, whether it's a, uh, a state unemployment benefit that you're currently collecting uh, or a, a different sort of federal 
sample program that you can collect, which I'll discuss about those other programs later. And so if you can collect as much as $1 in state unemployment benefits, uh, the federal government will allow us to pay you $600, just a flat $600 uh, on top of that uh, money. So your weekly unemployment check, uh, whatever that may be, as long as it's not zero, we will add $600 on top of that. Uh, so that's there. And as soon as we get that programmed into, into the system, uh, hopefully uh, as uh, soon as about two weeks from now is our current projection. Uh, knock on wood, fingers crossed, uh, that we are uh, able to start doing that in about two weeks. Uh, we will uh, hopefully get that out to folks. Uh, if you have qualified uh, for benefits because that federal benefit uh, was available, uh, effective with the uh, uh, week ending April 4th, uh, if you had a valid claim for that week, uh, we will make it retroactive. And so we will uh, pay you uh, back to uh, the week ending April 4th and make sure that you're made whole. Um, so that's just a bonus $600 right there. Uh, the next uh, program I want to talk to you about is uh, called Pandemic Unemployment Assistance. Uh, some people are calling it PUA around here. Uh, I like to call it the gap filler. And basically what this is, is it's more federal money uh, to help fill in people who don't necessarily qualify for regular unemployment benefits, uh, but uh, can, uh, but are still nonetheless impacted by COVID-19 uh, and are still uh, uh, you know, out of work and out of a job and not able to earn the income. And so what this uh, pandemic unemployment assistance will do is uh, cover folks who are maybe exempt uh, from regular unemployment assistance, uh, perhaps because they worked for a church or other religious organization, perhaps because they're an independent contractor, uh, maybe they're self-employed, uh, or folks who don't have necessarily have 680 hours in their base year. Uh, H-2A migrant workers are also exempt from state unemployment as well. Uh, they could potentially uh, qualify for this pandemic unemployment assistance. Um, so, so yeah, if you don't necessarily qualify for uh, regular unemployment, you may be able to fall into this bucket. And what you have to do is you have to show some sort of uh, connection uh, to the fact that you are laid off or out of work due to COVID-19. So this can include people who have been diagnosed with COVID-19, uh, folks who have a family member who's diagnosed or seeking treatment due to COVID-19. Uh, your business was closed down because the governor ordered your business to close down. So that's a lot of uh, restaurant workers, uh, you know, folks that, you know, your, your non-essential businesses. Uh, you know, large gathering places uh, are all closed down uh, due to the governor's order. Uh, if you were, you know, scheduled to start a job, you had your, your uh, paper uh, ready to go, and then all of a sudden your business closed uh, because of COVID-19, uh, that's also going to be covered by this federal law. And then also a uh, huge category here, parents who had to stay home to take care of their kids uh, because school's closed, or if you have someone else you're taking care of uh, because school's closed. So uh, those are all, uh, you know, great ways to fit in to get uh, uh, this pandemic unemployment assistance. Uh, the folks who are explicitly not covered are uh, folks who are taking advantage of paid sick leave or other sort of paid leave benefits. Uh, you can't get both paid sick leave and this uh, pandemic unemployment assistance. Also, if you have the ability to work from home and telework with pay, uh, which is what I'm doing, uh, then I would not qualify as well. Um, so that's pandemic unemployment assistance, I call it the gap filler. And then the last one I call uh, pan pandemic employment, pandemic emergency unemployment compensation, sometimes called uh, PUKE or PIUK. I, I hate both of those acronyms. Uh, so I like to call it the extender. And basically what this does is this uh, adds on uh, 13 weeks of benefits uh, onto a regular unemployment claim. So uh, most people, uh, their maximum uh, unemployment benefits is going to be about 26 weeks of benefits. This will add 13 weeks of benefits on top of that. So uh, your un regular unemployment claim just got 13 weeks longer. And so we're hoping that uh, between the additional money uh, the pandemic unemployment assistance filling in a lot of the gaps, and then uh, this uh, PUK or PUK or pandemic emergency unemployment compensation 
also extending this, uh, that we'll be able to help get more money into the economy and more money into people's pockets to help them ride this really, really bad economic hit that we're all taking as a result of this. Uh, I mean, some of it is necessary. We have to stay home, stay in place in order to keep uh, us safe, to keep our families safe, to keep our community safe. So uh, thanks to the state unemployment employment system that's already been there and now these new federal benefits, uh, we're hoping that we can minimize and diminish uh, the economic hit that everybody's taking as a result of uh, these stay-at-home orders in this pandemic. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. Um, I have a hand up from Dulce who has a question. Okay. Hi, yeah, thank you. I just wanted to um, be clear that it, on whether or not any of this extension is made available to undocumented community members. Uh, yes, the unfortunately, the uh, federal government has spoken in, uh, in the guidance that they have provided, and they are very explicit that uh, we cannot provide any of these federal benefits to undocumented workers. Thank you for uh, that Just like we can't provide un, uh, regular unemployment assistance to undocumented workers. Okay, and, and, and but H-2A workers will um, be guaranteed an opportunity to apply for this? Uh, yeah, so, if, uh, so un, for state unemployment, H-2A workers <coughs> are exempt, uh, but uh, there is the possibility that if you can show that uh, you fit into one of the buckets uh, you can show your, you lost your job or not available to work due to COVID-19. Uh, that's the type of exempt work that could be picked up by pandemic unemployment assistance, uh, so long as you are legally entitled uh, to receive those benefits. I don't know how to raise my hand on this thing. This is Go Rosalinda. ahead, Rosalinda. I have a question. Um, so while you're saying that this this fund is being made available for undocumented workers. That's what you're saying, right? Uh, no, undocumented workers cannot uh, access these federal benefits or state benefits. Uh, What's the pandemic worker. unemployment assistance? So the pandemic unemployment assistance is federal funds uh, to help fill in for people who do not qualify uh, for regular state unemployment assistance, either because they don't have enough hours or they may have been exempted from state law, like uh, H-2A workers. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, as a, condition, as a condition of receiving the federal funds, uh, the feds have made it very clear uh, that we cannot use it to pay undocumented workers. Is the state looking to set up a fund for farm workers here? If, I mean, if H-2A workers who are not living, you know, if they qualify for this federal fund, what is the state going to do to ensure that farm workers that are undocumented are able to access some funds, some, some support? Um, so that's a very good question. We are still in the process of uh, coming up with our, uh, uh, of our uh, implementation plan. Uh, we are furiously coming up with policies and uh, feeding that into our IT programming. So uh, I will uh, take that down as a uh, action item. Uh, to bring back to our policy team uh, and our communications team uh, to see uh, what we can do to act upon that. What does the IT stands for? Uh, information technology, so our computer programmers. So the funding is there, you just need to implement it? Uh, so yeah, the, uh, the federal government has provided the uh, funding for this. Uh, this was technically all effective uh, at the beginning of the month, uh, but we are working with our computer programmers uh, in order to implement this system, especially since the federal government is still providing us with more guidance on how to implement the bill. So no, I'm talking about funding for farm workers, undocumented farm workers. We need a fund somehow the state needs to find funding for undocumented workers. Is there an effort being made anywhere for that? Uh, I, I am not aware of any of that. That's gonna be needs to be something that's gonna have to be uh, uh, something done at the state level, most likely uh, through legislation. Uh, so either if a special session gets called in the next couple months or two, or in uh, the next time the legislature gets in, uh, you know, that is something that can be talked about, but as far as uh, there is no state law uh, for at least for employment security to provide these uh, any sort of funds for undocumented workers. 
So I think that's, that's something you need to take back that's needed to figure out quicker than a, than a legislative session. Rosalinda. Yeah. Um, there is a relief fund for undocumented individuals. Um, it is funded or it's being organized through Northwest, Northwest Immigration Rights and by Washington Dream Coalition. Um, they're currently raising $200,000 for undocumented workers. I understand there's lots of, I think there's several funds being worked on. I'm asking that the state also look for funding from state government to provide farm workers that are undocumented with support. They are essential workers. They've always, they're still working. And I'm putting it out there that I, this um, representative needs to go back and take that information back. I think it's, it's really shameful that we have to struggle and set up these funds for farm workers, which is a, a harder road, I think. And it also leaves us on the, on the margins of the recognition that essential workers need to have from the state government. That needs to be figured out with the state so we don't have to bring this up again next time. That's my message that you have to take back. Thanks, Rosalinda. So I do want to uh, let you know that this has been a conversation with the governor's office. Uh, and while they have not necessarily figured out a way to implement those funds with an ESD, um, because I'm told that there would be um, a lot of rule changes, whatever, um, they have identified a fund within the Department of Social and Health Services. I provided this information a couple weeks ago. Um, it's a disaster release fun, uh, relief fund provided by DSHS and it's activated by uh, crisis or emergency situations. If, to my understanding, it is not open yet. Um, but once that information comes uh, around to me, I'll make sure that this group knows how that is um, accessible. Uh, I did press that we needed to have additional funding into this group because this is a funding that's made available to specifically anybody that is eligible, um, specifically undocumented immigrants and uh, not having adequate funding to that to that program was gonna be an issue. Um, so I have been told that there has been an increase in funding and I don't know what, what the holdup is on opening it, but once I hear back, I will let you know. Um, any other questions for Hello. Scott before yeah. we move on? Yes, I have a question. Um, my name is Tomas Madrigal. I'm part of the community engagement team at the JIC. Um, what some of the people that I'm engaging in the eastern part of the United States or United States eastern part of Washington um, are are some of those employees that are exempt because they work in barbershop and salons um, and they would like to know how they would apply for uh, a pandemic unemployment assistance because they're going through the ESD portal and getting denied regularly. And so is there a special way that uh, somebody could apply for a pandemic unemployment assistance um, support? Um, so, uh, yeah, so in a couple of weeks, when we announce that we have launched a uh, pandemic unemployment assistance, uh, that will have uh, some instructions on how folks uh, can and should apply. Uh, we're also trying to uh, find efficiencies uh, for folks who have already applied and been denied to see what we can do to get them set up with pandemic unemployment assistance um, automatically. I'm not sure if we'll be able to do that, but that's something we are looking at. Um, and uh, we're in con uh, trying to have conversations with the federal government to see what they'll allow us to do. Uh, because again, this is the federal government's money. So we do have to you know, follow their instructions as far as how we spend it and what we do uh, as far as uh, paying out these benefits. Uh, something that uh, you're, you're working in, in barbershops and salons though uh, may want to explore is uh, they may be being denied because they haven't been had hours and wages reported for them. Uh, there is the potential that uh, folks who are working in barbershops and salons may actually not be exempted from state unemployment insurance benefits. So uh, what usually happens is that when folks who have been treated as exempt by their employers, uh, what we'll do is we'll just send back your, their, uh, the list of what they're eligible for based off of only what has been reported by their employers on their tax reports. 
they do have the opportunity to uh, look at that document, see that there is an opportunity to challenge what's on there and what's called ask for a redetermination and then uh, provide evidence that uh, they are not exempted and that they uh, are, um, you know, ha do have hours and wages that they did work and did earn. And then we would have an opportunity to look at that and then provide them uh, with regular state unemployment benefits. So that's something to look at, uh, you know, even now or uh, especially uh, after the federal government has stopped uh, paying out benefits and uh, the folks in your community uh, may or may not be laid off in the future. Scott? Yes. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, this is Jose uh, Ortiz with Catholic Community Services. You mentioned uh, nonprofit organizations um, that their uh, workers might qualify. Um, can you explain that to us again uh, for small uh, small nonprofit organizations, uh, how they could qualify, and then uh, if you could tell us uh, the process and then if there's um, the website. Um, so as far as the website, what I encourage everyone to do is to uh, get on to www.esd.wa.gov. That's our main page. And right there towards the top, there's a banner uh, where we talk about COVID-19, and there's also a little uh, hyperlink that, set, uh, that says you can sign up uh, for updates. Uh, please sign up for updates. That's the best and most efficient way for us to uh, communicate uh, any updates related to uh, what we're doing. But in a couple of weeks when we do launch this uh, program, uh, knock on wood, hopefully we can uh, get that done in a couple of weeks. Um, uh, there will be information on how folks can apply uh, for pandemic unemployment assistance. But at this point, we're still building the program. so I and provide you any sort of details as far as how uh, folks can apply, but that is, but folks who are working for churches and uh, who are traditionally exempt from state unemployment assistance uh, could be able to access pandemic unemployment assistance uh, through the federal program. Awesome, thank you, Scott. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> you no, it, made the, the office joke and then I flipped your name. So now you are Michael Scott in my head forever. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Scott. I really appreciate you guys giving me giving us some time um, and providing some additional information. I'll make sure to share the ESD link with people and um, I'll check in in a couple weeks to see if the program is ready. Um, and if I have more questions, can I reach out to you um, to, to make those clarification questions on behalf of this group? Uh, certainly, or I know that uh, Mariana Hernandez from our policy team has also uh, come and joined these calls. So just to continue to reach out to the contact and uh, we'll see if we can find somebody available, uh, whether it's me or Mariana, she's on a different call right now. We're, we're, we're in high Good demand, but uh, we'll do what we can to help out uh, our folks. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, everybody, we are, it's 11, 1226 and we're a little bit behind schedule. So um, I'm going to provide some updates from the Department of Health. We couldn't get somebody on the line today, um, but specifically the steering committee had been hearing about um, inspections specifically uh, on farm worker housing and we wanted to get some uh, clarifying questions on authority um, and inspections. And uh, unfortunately, I got some pretty general information. I do have a couple of clarifying questions out for them, but I'll let you know what they wrote me. The question was, do you have authority to inspect workplaces, specifically agricultural settings and farm worker housing? The answer, we perform uh, annually two inspections at each facility, including pre-occupancy inspection and, occupan and occupancy inspection. If serious violations are found during an inspection, a follow-up inspection is performed to assure compliance. We accept and investigate complaints related to health and sanitation and temporary worker housing. This question arose um, just due to the social distancing measures. I do have um, some clarifying questions on how COVID is impacting this rule that they normally have, um, specifically asking whether an investigation triggered by a COVID-related complaint is going to fulfill one of their two annual um, um, inspections. 
so really I wanted to get an idea of what the flow is, but the short answer is that yes, DOH is inspecting and will um, respond to complaints received regarding farm worker housing. Um, the second question that we had for them is how do you take the complaints? Uh, and the answer is uh, right now they're going, if they're funneling everything through the corona virus.wa.gov website um, and I'll, we'll provide a link to that on our notes. It is a little hard to find that complaint form um, so I think it's important for me to link specifically where you go. It's not translated so I have flagged um, with the governor's office uh, that, that that needs to be translated um, and how you know offered help there. Um, the third question is, does Department of Health have a list of sites where people can go and get tested for COVID-19? And when I provided that uh, question on Monday uh, evening, uh, by Wednesday morning, they had a preliminary uh, list. So thanks for flagging that, you guys. Um, that list is going to be made public on the coronavirus.wa.gov. I have the draft list, but it doesn't include Providence Swedish and Cadlet hospital system, so it's incomplete. Regardless, I've been given the green light to share that with you um, so that you know where testing is happening. Um, I have two non-DOH related updates. One of them is specifically related to the LNI um, Division of Occupational Safety and Health. There's a new directive that explains how um, investigators should be uh, taking a look at workplaces in respect to the governor's proclamation on social distancing. Um, there is a guideline that is in current uh, currently in its second draft, and once it's finalized, it's going to be translated to the top eight languages. The reason that they're putting together this guideline is so that workers understand what inspectors are going to be looking for should, uh, should an inspector come out to a work site specifically during this COVID crisis. Um, I and I can... Could I comment on that real quickly? Sure. We have been reviewing that guideline. It's the... It's the uh, Coronavirus Prevention and Agriculture Guideline. So we're, lo we're looking at the one related to farm workers. And what we're finding with these guidelines is that they're, they're not, there's very little in it that's enforceable. Most of the language in these guidelines are recommendations, suggestions. Um, and so trying to get these guidelines to be enforceable, especially in the agricultural industry, is going to be really important. Um, we're not very pleased that that this is a complaint-driven system. It's always been a complaint-driven system and it's never worked the way it should work for farm workers. And the Department of Health, almost everything that they've done on inspections for housing was done before the, the pandemic. And so we feel like there's a lot of backtracking they have to do to re-inspect and re-approve some of the farm worker housing that has already been approved because it wasn't done of course, they didn't know, right, with the pandemic, but I, we feel like as a state agency, they need to back up and reconsider what they've done and really take this pandemic seriously for farm workers. And Rosalinda, I'm happy to take more information in terms of uh, specific um, recommendations that we can, if I, if you need, if if you'd like me to help elevate those concerns, I'm happy to. I do, and um, so, so let me know. emailing to this group um, the recommendations that we've been making to both the Department of Health and Labor and Industries, because we had the same concern with Labor and Industries. It's, um, the, the reality is they don't have the resources to do all those inspections or to follow through on what they say they're gonna do. And what we're, again, trying to do, and I think what we should do, is again, try to get the state to move resources to be able to cover the majority of our folks that are, well, at least the, the, the farm workers, right? Because I'm coming from that perspective. So in agriculture, mm -hmm. it's a big issue how the state agencies are collaborating with each other, or in some cases not. Or not. Um, mm -hmm. So there's gaps, right? Mm -hmm. And then they're going to point fingers at each other, which is what they've always done. But I'll Oh, we lost you. Oh. So this is David. Um, I'm going to just state what I said in the comments, which is with um, 
the I, RS, there's a tendency to go out and do um, public um, enforcement of places that haven't been paying their taxes and then like basically put it out there for everyone to see, you know, media and so forth. Um, but it encourages, and they do that usually like in a month before um, taxes are due in order to encourage everyone to comply and be taxes. The, the thing is, there's, there's several parts. One, there's very few LNI inspectors. And number two, um, everyone's sort of used to a regime where LNI calls ahead of time and employers and everyone gets the opportunity to fix everything that's wrong. And then, and then you know, the inspection happens, everything's good and, and everyone moves on. In order to ensure mass compliance, the department should be basically um, <clears throat> making enforcement public and making enforcement unannounced. I think that would send like basically chills down the spine of, of a lot of workplaces and get quick compliance across the board. And that's what we need right now. We need quick compliance across the board. I would, um, so this is Giovanni with the Latino Community Fund and I would 100% support uh, David's comment right there. In fact, um, some of the farm workers that I've been able to communicate with have mentioned to me that their mayordomo, which is their supervisor, explicitly have told them to uh, to follow these rules because there are there is going to be some sort of inspection, but to not necessarily feel that they have to follow those rules um, after the inspection. Um, um, and I was surprised because they they explicitly told me the exact words that the mayordomo had mentioned to them that like essentially you know they know that these <clears throat> these recommendations from the state will hinder the. Uh, the effectiveness of their work capacity. So once that inspection is over, they no longer have to feel that they have to comply with those rules. So um, I, I agree with David. Um, um, if we can, you know, uh, have LNI to do some um, un, unannounced and unexpected um, invest inspections, I think many of these companies would be forced to comply. Um, um, because, like I said, uh, these, this is what the workers are being told by their own supervisors, um, um, which is obviously not helpful. And also, um, I've, I have been told <clears throat> as well that um, some farm workers, in fact, are still going to work sick, um, um, but because of fear of not um, either, you know, getting more hours to work or just, you know, not having access to some of these resources, since most of them are undocumented, they do still go to work. Um, um, and, um, you know, some of them are aware that they do have some sick hours to claim, but even even so, um, they, they don't claim them because of the fear that they might not be able to work again. So just, just wanted to put that out there that these are actual things that are happening right now in our community. And Maria, this is Dulce. Um, I also echo uh, what uh, Gio and David have said. We're all here in the Yakima County. This is a very um, visible problem in our community. Um, but I wanted to also add that if the inspectors are arriving and expecting that maybe workers will either confirm or deny any of the conditions being met or not met, I think that that's also um, something information that is not dependable. Workers will not speak out against their own employer while they're on the work site um, almost ever. And so I think that there has to be not only an intentional effort to do this unannounced, these inspections unannounced, but also there should be some other form of affirming um, that standards are being met outside of, of the, the communication that's happening during that inspection on the work site. Uh, most workers are obviously going to be afraid that they will be fired, let go, some sort of retaliation could happen to them. So I just wanted to make sure that that's not going to be something that folks think that can be a credible source of affirming that standards are being met. Got it. Thank you, uh, Dulce, Giovanni, David. Um, loud and clear, I think this really speaks to transparency uh, in the sense that um, state should be enforcing rules in a way that is beneficial to their workers, right? Um, I have Uriel who has a, his hand up. Let me unmute you. So uh, thank you. And I think uh, you know, Salinda, we just 
finished a two-hour meeting talking about this earlier this morning. Um, so just to make it clear that our inspectors, it is against state law for our inspectors to call the employer ahead of time to do an inspection. So if anybody knows about that, then that, that's against the law. But in, there is a program that we call consultation where an employer can call us and then we will help them get in compliance. And so sometimes that's occurring and of course employees don't know the difference. But when we react to a complaint, we're not gonna be calling the employer ahead of time. We're gonna be going unannounced and doing the inspection to a complaint. Or if we just, inspectors out there, they have uh, a list of where they're gonna concentrate on and they just do the inspection. So, so let's just, to make that clear, that we are doing that, that is part of our practice. And I think Rosalinda articulated and some of you during this pandemic, what is it that we are gonna do extra? And, they, and yes, those resources are a question. Um, we can't, there's no way we can cover every single employment out there. I mean, we're just talking about ag, but think of everything else that we also have to cover in terms of doing an inspection to make sure that they're in compliance with all the, the, the rules that the governor has put up. And so that's, we'll have to be creative in how we're gonna do that. Um, but of course, um, on the ag part of it, uh, hopefully next week we'll have the, the guidelines that I think Maria and some of you have seen, uh, second draft right now. And once we put that out, those are they gonna be the expectations when we go on site we're going to hold the employers accountable to that. Thanks, Uriel. Um, the third update that I wanted to, to provide you guys was actually something that came in uh, via email early this morning from WASPIC, the Washington, what is it, Sheriffs and Police uh, Association, something like that. Um, they, uh, specifically the executive director had sent an emails to the police chiefs and the sheriffs. Uh, and here's, here's what it says. Uh, Governor Inslee identified which businesses and workers are essential. His guidance specifically outlines the following. Farm workers to include those employed in animal food, feed and ingredient production, packaging and distribution, etc. Are essential workers, farm workers, and support service workers include those who field crops, commodity inspection, fuel ethanol facilities, storage facilities, and other agricultural inputs. Will law enforcement require identification of essential workers? No. Law enforcement will not require that essential workers provide identification or other documentation to travel to work. Do essential workers need a special pass to prove that they are allowed to go to work? Essential workers are permitted to travel to and from work without a special permit. So this was uh, relayed very, very much in line with what the governor's um, proclamation was. Um, and it was specifically relayed by WASPIC director to sheriffs and police chiefs to disseminate amongst their uh, organizations. So um, we do have some additional clarifying information specifically from, from WASPIC, which is a credible organization to the sheriffs and the police chiefs. Um, and I think this is a, a really good um, support that uh, that our uh, police chiefs have gotten. So uh, there shouldn't be question as to whether or not people need to have a permit to travel. Answer is no. Um, and people, I mean, police organizations should not be stopping people. So if you guys are still hearing that, I know that that has been something that has come up during our calls a few times. Um, in the last weeks, uh, let us know so that we can continue making that message uh, more clear. Uh, Maria, this is Christina from LCF here in Yakima. Question. Hey, Christina. Um, regarding that information, is this okay then for me to convey, uh, like during my radio segments on behalf of Latino Community Fund to our community so that our gente knows that this is, you know, 
reliable information? Um, yeah, I can provide you with the proclamation, but I can also PDF the email that was sent from WASPIC to sheriffs and police chiefs uh -huh. um, so that you, you have that copy. That'd be great. I have segment tomorrow, so I'd really like to get that updated um, current information out. Okay. So Thank you. This is, this is hey, also, just really quickly. This is Tomas from the Community Engagement Task Force at the Joint Information Center in Washington. And that was actually material that was developed by the Joint Information Center, and it should be available on the coronavirus.wa.gov website. Thank I'm going to have to get off the call. So I wanted to say um, just one thing before I got off the call is that um, we should all remember this letter and keep it because post the pandemic, all of these sheriffs that have cooperated with ICE all of these years need to remember that they did this now. And if they can do this now, they can do this all the time. And I think we need to hold them accountable post this pandemic um, because it's shameful that you know, they can say that now, but in many counties, they're cooperating with ICE. Thanks, Rosalinda. All right, that wrapped up my portion. Um, we had specifically carved out some time for Jose from um, Catholic Community Services to provide some additional information for us um, in regards to needs. Jose, are you on the line? We'll come back to him. Can everybody still hear me? Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Can you okay, hear me? me? Yes, Jose. Yeah. Yeah. You're, so, you're uh, on the line. Okay. So just, you know, following uh, all the concerns that we might have as a, as a community, but, you know, like uh, some of the concerns like Rosalinda might have and all of you, regarding the, the farm worker, but in general, all the poor in our community. Um, it's uh, some of it is the how we're reaching out and some other things that we could maybe uh, use to reach out further into our communities that are not being reachable somehow. Some of the ideas that we had is maybe using um, the school systems, like they use uh, mass text or uh, a voice, uh, information like they do when the, the school closures and uh, and then the radio. Uh, we also had an idea, you know, like in Mexico or in other countries, they use a speaker system, you know, the cars that travel around in the communities, uh, just making announcements of the things that they're selling. We were, and I don't know how this would go, I think in some neighborhoods would be okay, but the police officers, they have a, a, a speaker system in their cars. So they have, uh, if there's crowds of people or crowds of kids, uh, you know, uh, together, if they can just say, uh, you know, distance, distance, or something like that on their speaker, on their speaker phone that they have. Um, the things that really concern us, uh, of course, uh, you know, the apartment complexes, we have multiple families that are living together because of poverty and their needs. Uh, along with that, it's going to be the, the farm, the, the, the camps. Um, you know, we know for a fact that, you know, it, it's, uh, you could see it on the walls. There's uh, health department codes that they go by, and it'll say like three or four people per cabin, but it's not uncommon to find eight people in a cabin. So if somebody gets sick, where would those families go? And this is a question for the health department that I've been uh, addressing, you know, here, but also with our local health department. Um, is there a place uh, that there or vouchers that they're putting aside for uh, family members that might have the virus or exposed to the virus? Um, I heard that, um, you know, they might, there might be some hotels and vouchers available. So if you guys know, of any, if you guys could give us the information. For example, Catholic Community Services, you know, we deal with a lot of shelters in Seattle, 
and we had to move our folks from the shelters because, uh, you know, they, they, they pretty much slept right next to each other, and we couldn't have that anymore. So we were able to secure funding to uh, put people in hotels, and we even rented a whole hotel uh, for the homeless. Um, so we're looking at those, um, you know, in our communities. Would, is that something that's going to be available, or how do we demand the health department to make those sites available for our community. Um, the other thing that, you know, there's many of, of our folks that are already, that already have the virus and, um, you know, we already have some folks in our communities that passed away. And uh, it's always our concern because, um, uh, you know, it's, it's the very poor people that we work with, uh, you know, in, in the church uh, that I used to work for, I used to be in charge of the funerals. And a lot of times, you know, it was poor families that couldn't pay for their own funerals. So I'm I'm asking, is, is will the health department or another department be able to provide us with some funding to help the, the families in those situations or in, a, in another situation? The other question that I brought to the local health department, and I'll bring it up to to us, is um, um, will they, um, do we know, or is there a way of knowing which other counties might have Spanish speakers in their health department? Um, you know, a lot of times the health departments themselves, they're multiple, they're multiple, uh, they're multiple uh, you know, doing their information, uh, you know that might be already out there. They're they're translating their own information. If it's already there from the state, um, you know we should be able to just uh, reuse the same information instead of reinventing the wheel. What um, oh with the migrant camps, I know that it's been going back and forth. It used to be um, that the the local health departments used to inspect the housing, then it went to the state and. Um, so there's a huge concern, you know, with that, that we don't know who's is, is, uh, are inspecting the migrant camps, but it would be really good to know. Um, in our community, you know, a lot, a lot of the folks that, look, that work for the counties also own the farm. So, you know, there's always that concern. Um, so I think I could leave it at that. Uh, there's so many other things, but we'll leave it at that. I do have a question for Jose, if he can answer this. Um, this is Fatima from, Cent I work in Centralia, yeah. and you, um, the Catholic uh, community um, owns like three properties in town. And so Fama said, you know, behind in the rents already. And I know that nobody can get evicted at this time, but it's a possibility yeah. um, that the, uh, the Catholic community services will f forgive those um, rents you know past rents because even if it's mm -hmm. help out there you know to pay the rent and stuff like that um it's not enough for p people to catch up with all their bills and all the um the stuff that they have yeah. to pay. I, I i can tell you that um you know we're going just like uh you know with the governor and nobody will get evicted you know what we're telling everybody is to go out there and um and, and see what other resources there is in the community that would help them um, with their rent. Uh, you know, we're in the same situation as everybody else. You know, if we don't make our payments, you know, we, we still got to make those payments unless we get funding ourselves. So, but nobody will get evicted uh, from the Catholic housing. We're willing to, I think what we said is that we're willing to work with anybody. Just make sure to make a plan um, to help pay uh, at a later time or just make time to see how much they could pay. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I, we have eight minutes left and I think there's been a lot of cross communication. Um, so thank you everybody for your um, participation. You do want to give Wizen some time to give some, um, some updates on their behalf. Montserrat, I saw you somewhere, but I don't see you anymore. Are you still with us? Yeah, I'm here. Um, okay. Uh, hello, everybody. My name is Montserrat Padilla. My pronouns are she or hers. I am the Westside co-director of the Washington Immigrant Solidarity Network. Uh, we work in a coalition format uh, with folks to do immigration 
deportation defense um, and our bread and butter is uh, supporting uh, all immigrant communities regardless of immigration status. Um, I just wanted to give an update. Uh, as folks know on last week's calls, we said that the hotline is now live for people to be able to call to access resources. Uh, researchers have been betting different food banks, different programs so that people in their local communities can call and access those resources. And when they do access those resources, people won't have a, you know further heckling time where they're trying to actually access food or things like that. And so um, the hotline is live. It's 1-844-724-3737. Um, at an average day, we receive over a thousand calls um, and people are able to call the hotline if there's like an, an, uh, a resource that they're trying to access, but it's only like an online application. And so the hotline volunteers are helping people fill out the forms even through the phone as well. So there's like technical assistance there. Um, I wanted to give today the, the the major update about the statewide fund. I appreciate Rosalinda's uh, real talk saying that those initiatives are not gonna be near enough um, and that the state needs to act on really providing a holistic um, um, relief uh, approach to ensuring that everybody in Washington is included. Um, just in, we launched the, the application as of yesterday, uh, it became live. Um, the people who are eligible for the Whiteson, NURP um, and Washington Room Coalitions Fund, sorry, is undocumented folks only. The reason why we did that is because anybody else with the social security uh, might have eligibility for either a stimulus relief or might have eligibility for unemployment access, uh, unemployment insurance access. So if you have a work authorization and you have a social security, people will qualify for those things, including DACA recipients. Um, and so that's why we made this fund specifically only for undocumented people. Um, we have fundraised around $150,000. Um, the, the, pe the people who applied as a, the application went live yesterday. Uh, over 6,200 people have already submitted a full length application. Uh, and so that just, you know, if we were to give a thousand people to each person, that means that we need $6 million just to address the need right now. And, you know, we all know that this particular uh, number is not even a real picture of what is the real need to the state, because there's people even knowing if there's that fun is, uh, you know, that fun exists, there's still that, um, those things. And so I just wanted to share if folks are interested in partnering up on this fund, these are our community organizations, grassroots groups, individual leaders who are committing themselves to helping fundraise. Uh, this big um, task that we have before us, right? 6,000 people uh, who, uh, you know, some of the stories have been really heartbreaking. I've been trying to do my best to kind of like uh, guard myself to not get too, too heartbroken every single time I receive, you know, an email with the, the heartbreaking stories of, of parents who, um, you know, one, one story is of a father who has been working for seven years, um, paid his taxes, done everything that he's been asked and all of a sudden lost his job. He has three kids. Um, and it's really, you know, that desperation of our families who don't know what to do anymore. Um, and so those are story, those are, that is the story of over 6,000 people who have submitted an application as of yesterday. Um, and I hope that folks in this call uh, would open their minds and being able to partner up on this fund. If your organization wants to fundraise, if your organization wants to uh, subgrant some of the money that you might have for general funds that you want to provide for this fund so that we can all collectively support this bigger uh, need. Um, yeah, and there's different ways that people can partner up. Um, and also like if your organization says, uh, requires that your membership gets certain part of that, you know, of that money, um, folks can reach out to us so we can establish some form of like agreement um, as the fund is growing. And so um, what else? Uh, there's a call today from three to five that's gonna be specific around uh, the advocacy around undocumented workers, um, uh, tracking any, any worker violations. Uh, we know that uh, while some of us are being unemployed, also uh, the essential workers right now of America are immigrant folks. As we saw the numbers, Black and Latino folks are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 and we're the ones that are dying at higher rates. And so there's something wrong there. Um, and if we don't address, uh, have an effective um, state um, response to include everybody, then those numbers will only be more uh, damaging for our communities. I'm happy to take any questions regarding the fund or or ways that Wyson is supporting right now or stepping up. Can you give us more information about the call that you'll be having from three to five? Yeah, I'm gonna actually send the information right now via the chat box. Uh, I'm gonna send two things. I'm gonna send the information of the call now uh, from three to five. And then I'm also gonna send the application for people to submit, you know, um, if they wanna be considered for the fund. Again, we definitely won't be able to support all 6,000 people 
um, unless we're able to uh, fundraise all that money that we need. Um, but um, in addition, we have been talking to the city of Seattle. Again, most of the need continues to be in the area of King County um, because they have been longer um, unemployed. Uh, the uh, King County, uh, sorry, the city of Seattle is considering um, as folks have seen around the around the nation that cities like Chicago, Minneapolis have started to, um, you know, understand that there is there is ways that the city and the state and the federal government can uh, provide financial relief for all of their residents, right? Um, Minneapolis launched a $5 million loan program for the residents. Chicago also just announced as of yesterday that they will be financially supporting their undocumented immigrants. And so there is a way, I think our state just needs to figure it out and get their job done. Um, and the city is also considering a, a similar program to Minneapolis of like a $5 million loan program. That is just advocacy work that is still moving forward. Um, as we continue to hear the state, hopefully the state will also step up. But in the meantime, this current uh, fund is a way that we are, it's a band-aid solution for the current and the really, the bigger need that is, exists. But um, I just sent on the chat box, both the call from three to five, uh, uh, which is there, the Zoom number is in there. And then the actual um, application itself is also there. So if people want to apply, that's where people can apply. Monse, um, is it possible for you to send me information? This is Christina about any orgs who want to donate to this fund or if you want to personally as an individual donate to this fund. Can you get me that information on how to do that? Yes. So if you look at the website, it's going to be uh, scholarships junkies. Um, junkies.org forward slash relief. Uh, you also have the EIN number. So this fund is also uh, 501c3. So any donation is tax deductible from anybody uh, who wants to donate. Um, and so that's a good um, added like future for people to encourage donations. Um, and then again, if partners, uh, like for example, um, if someone in Spokane is looking for to apply for a grant um, and they want to reinvest those funds to the to the fund, um, they're able to use a 501c3 already, uh, which is the fiscal the scholarship junkies to regrant that funding for. I have a question, and it's something that we've done with the DACA. Uh, Monse, if you could uh, maybe comment on that. Uh, we worked with the credit unions, um, you know, back then, and the credit unions up here in Whatcom, Skagit and Whatcom, were able to loan a uh, uh, million dollars that was divided for the, you know, for the DACA uh, students if they needed a loan to get their documents going. I wonder if anybody would be able to work on something like that with the uh, with the credit unions to see if they could provide loans. I know that in our area, uh, it was really easy to get a loan. I think it was a thousand dollars loan just recently that anybody that was a member of that credit union could get a thousand dollar loan with not too many questions asked. Yeah, that is definitely on on the pipelines of like one of the strategies that we're considering. Um, I think one of the one of the things that we are being mindful of is that knowing that there is funds that the state can act upon and, and regrant um, as you know more uh, as we're moving into the you know a disaster phase or an economic uh, recession, there tends to be um, uh, loopholes or not loopholes, but like activation of financial uh, finance relief for all residents. So we're kind of trying to figure out. Um, making sure that we're advocating um, for the best for our communities, ensuring that if there is no, no need for a loan, but actually the state stepping up to financially provide relief, then we're looking for that strategy. But in, if in other places, in other regions where there is a loan as, a, as yet another strategy of defense, then we're also looking into that. And so the city of Seattle is one of those places where they're considering a loan system. Um, and again, right now it's in the, in the conversation phase. I hope that other folks can check in with them and, and encourage them um, to, you know, to act upon that, that idea. Um, and yeah. This is uh, Jimmy Mata. Um, you know, I just met with, on Monday with Empresarios Unidos, about 24 businesses uh, from Seattle and King County. Um, and obviously their needs are gonna be different than just the regular person that is uh, on the worker, worker side. It's not for the undocumented worker, right? Because the undocumented worker doesn't get any kind of funding, and neither does the business get any kind of funding because they're undocumented. Even the SBA loans they can't apply for. Um, but some of them are doing better off than others. And so I'd like to see if we're going to be meeting next Tuesday at noon 
we can talk to some of them because right now it's a lot of mistrust going on is about how do they give their money. So a lot of them have uh, bought this uh, at their stores. Yeah. And, well, for instance, the businesses in Burien, they, they feel that they, they're, they're happy that uh, people have been patronizing their business. So they want something with a Burien, right? Um, and so then you got the, a business from Quincy that ended up calling in. And they said, hey, we've been selling tacos y carne asadas to people that are suffering now. Queremos dar que sea arroz o frijoles, un poco de dinero, right? So um, I think that, you know, and the meetings are in Spanish. So if maybe next Tuesday, I know that uh, Uriel Iniguez is going to be there from LNI talking about what the businesses have to do. And then also este, um, Fernando Martinez with uh, um, a business organization talking about some kind of money that's out there. But I mean, not all of them are undocumented. It's just the ones that are undocumented that I'm concerned about how do they maintain their businesses, right? And so I know that the state and the county has put out some money and without, I think the county more without any restrictions, right? But uh, but uh, just at least for those businesses that want to help out where they can help out. Because I really do think we need to channel the money all in one area so it gets filtered correctly. Yeah, I think one of the key things that you mentioned was just trust, right? Because everybody, I think the vision of the fund was that we would all huddle around one particular pot so we can all put in that money. And also in addition, like we also have one place where applicants are submitting applications, right? And so there's a better way of uh, being able to um, uh, spread out the support more effectively. Um, and, the, and if we're all kind of huddling around this one fund, uh, more people would trust it and the fund would actually achieve the, the broader goal and the needs that are being brought up, right? And so, uh, and there's, yeah, in terms of restaurant partnerships, like if, if restaurants want to support by providing rice or beans, like uh, for example, in in, in Virian, uh, Birreria Tijuana, they offered rice and beans and that was super dope, um, right? The people can partner up also with the hotline and we can also do promotions of like, um, you know, in Yakima, there's rice and beans or, or access to food here um, on this day. And, and so that's a little bit of the model. Yeah. That's what Super, uh, Super Pollo did too here, is they put uh, bags of frijoles and arroz, and then, um, you know, they've been trying to help each other. There is a building here in Burien that a Latino contractor bought, and he's offered it up for as long as this pandemic's uh, out here to be able to help. It has a kitchen in it, so it's over on Ambom, and so he says is that he's willing to donate the building while this is going on uh, for either bringing the food there or having meetings there, so I just wanted to offer that up here in Burien. Gracias. And I'm happy to join the meeting. Thank you. Monse, I have a question. When do the people should expect a phone call or an email from you guys if they apply for the uh, funds? Yeah, so um, we're going to be, uh, there's, it's going to be staggered, right? Because we also know that there's like a digital divide that people are not, even even if we have the phone as, as a way that people can apply, um, we're going to have them staggered. Um, so it won't be like a first come, first serve type of approach because that's not also very equitable. Um, and so, I think we're going to start cutting off on Friday all the applicants and then review them. Um, and so I'm assuming in the next, there's 6,000 folks. <laughs> um, there, you know, automatically there, people will submit certain questions and uh, there is a prioritization um, uh, form. Um, so um, think people who were prioritizing are people who are high risk, um, including under high risk are, you know, folks who are over the age of 50, um, folks who uh, have chronic illnesses, folks who are black are also considered high risk. Um, and where, you know, that's one point of your high risk. Uh, if you've lost your job uh, because of COVID-19, that's like another point. Um, and so there will be a prioritization format. I'm assuming within, I think for the next check-in call, uh, for the next Thursday, I can give you a better understanding of what will be our timeline because that we just launched it yesterday. And so I think right now in the next two days, we're going to try to figure out how do we divide this work up. Also, if folks want to help actually be part of the team who's going to um, do the vetting calls and just like the, the be part of the regranting team, um, we, we need volunteers. So hopefully folks can help us with that as well. Because um, we're still can trying you? to that out. It's really difficult. Monse, can you repeat that? Uh, you said there was priority on King County. Um, did I understand that right then, no, that you're going to be focusing on the Seattle area? No, no, no. Actually, this fund, uh, one-third of the funds that we fundraise um, will go to the nearby King County Westside areas, but two-thirds of whatever we fundraise will go for uh, statewide, knowing that most of the funds always huddled around King County. Um, and so, actually, this fund is really, the intention is that it goes 
beyond, you know, actually really to central and eastern Washington. That's really our goal because knowing, knowing that um, our, king, our uh, county council, uh, our commissioners will always, you know, figure out a way to, to free up some coins. We know that that's not the case for Benton County and other places that don't necessarily have that type of um, uh, political space. But yeah, most of this yeah. fund is going to be for folks outside of King County. Yeah, that's because it's a huge concern, you know, the real thing that keeps bringing it up, but I'll, I'll continue to do the same, you know, and, and especially in Washington, we're in Skagit, we're kind of the last people to get any kind of support for our people. So just keep that in mind and, and thank you for everything that you guys are doing. Yeah, no problem. And hopefully folks can partner with us. Um, feel free yeah, to email us, send me an email. There's a couple of questions here um, asking how we can volunteer to help. Um, with receiving applications. So I'll take that last question. Um, I'll just say for right now, as we're still trying to figure out the structure, um, uh, email email me. <laughs> I, I provided my, I'll provide my email right now. Um, or you can email info at wysen.org and I will set you up once we have the process established. But we will be needing volunteers to, you know, to betting and, and, and then making the calls for if people are getting the fund or if people are not getting the fund, everybody is going to get, you know, even if we're not able to regrant um, uh, the money to people, everybody's going to get a tailored um, vetting list of resources in the region. So for example, if you are from Burien or you're from Pasco, uh, we will send, you know, unfortunately we weren't, the fund currently right now doesn't have the capacity to address the need. Uh, but in the meantime, you hear some food banks, here's uh, the way, here's a, a letter on how to tell your, um, your, um, your landlord um, that you know that there's a rent freeze and then uh, this is a template letter that we'll send out to people so we're gonna give tools for people even if we can't provide the financial uh, check right other tools for for relief um, and resources that might be available tailored specifically for the region um, and so anybody who submits an application uh, will get a tailored uh, response of resources in the region and some of them will be able to receive a, a, a check um, but again 6,000 people. We only have, oh, I think, near 150,000 right now. Um, I think for the next couple of, you know, I can estimate that in the next couple of weeks, we can probably fundraise up to like $500,000, but uh, that's still nowhere near enough to the real need that is present before us. Yeah. And that's just like $500,000 on like fundraising strategies that we have played out. And I think that's far seem, seem feasible, but beyond that, I think it's going to be a big push. Wonderful. Thank you, Monse, for the information. Um, everybody, thank you for sticking around an extra 10 minutes uh, with uh, Monse's presentation. We'll go ahead and, and wrap up. Uh, we will be convening again next week. Um, I don't know. I don't even know what date today is. Next <laughs> Thursday will be uh, the 16th at noon again, um, and we'll provide uh, similar information, a we'll, we'll similar format with different information. So we hope to see you then. Thank you very much for attending today. Sí, gracias, María. Gracias a usted. Hasta luego. Hasta luego.